thank you once again for your warm welcome and for this privilege of sharing together in your second Advent Sunday series. <clears throat> Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that we looked in anticipation to the king who was coming, and we looked at quite an obscure passage in the Old Testament, David's last words. And this morning we're going to look at an equally obscure or relatively obscure passage in the New Testament. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read the story of an old man called Simeon. Our overall title this morning is The King is Here. Let's read what that looked like. We're going to pick up the reading in Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. These people were poor. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And the sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's an old phrase, patience is a virtue, possess it if you can, rarely found in women, never found in man. Now, I don't even know if you can say these kind of things these days or whether they're sexist and politically incorrect. But they're making a point, that phrase is making a point about the fact that we find waiting difficult. And waiting is not something that we're usually very good at. At least I'm not. And it starts early in life. We've seen some uh, children on the stage today. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that in your life, as in mine, you'll have experienced, if you've either had children or been with them in a long journey, the endless mantra after an hour and a half down the M74 on the way to Cornwall, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And... What is intuitive in youngsters long before the digital age is only, ma- is only amplified really by our technology, isn't it? Uh, because our culture is designed now for instant connectivity. 
And what betide you if you haven't opened that WhatsApp message in good time and those little ticks haven't turned blue, you'll start becoming anxious. And I haven't heard back from them yet. When did you text them? Three minutes ago. That kind of thing. On average, did you know, just in passing, that we check our phones about 96 times per day? That's about um, once every 10 minutes. We cannot wait for news or information or connection or responses. Waiting is almost always seen as a problem. Uh, And that plays out in the narrative that we hear on our news, doesn't it? You know, waiting times are not normally good things. Waiting rooms are not normally happy places. You want to spend a lot of your time in that kind of environment. Cues. Cues. Anybody enjoy cues? No, didn't think so. Waiting is not great. And the circle of doom on the computer screen. Well, we know what that feels like as we wait for something to load. And we're all kind of singing the great anthemic mantra that Queen made famous a number of years ago. I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. See, you're all secret listeners to things on the radio. And what I want to think about this morning with you is the fact that when we think, when we bring uh, our longing and our desire for things to, to happen quickly into our spiritual life, then it comes as a bit of a culture shock to sometimes discover that God's not in a hurry. Not on our terms, at least. We have a longing that things should be better. We have a longing for that time when God will make everything right, don't we? We just sense all the good things in being alive in life itself. We know that they are tasters of the eternal state of perfection into which God will bring us, for which he has created us. And we long for that and we want it and sometimes we just can't wait to have it. We want life under God's king quickly. But we must learn to wait. And to live under God's rule in God's kingdom involves waiting. It always has done. So let's try and unpack what that looks like this morning. We're going to think about the context of the kingdom as the king arrives. We're going to think about the conundrum of the kingdom, a puzzle that has to be solved. We're going to think about the community of the kingdom, the people who belong to it in the first place. And then we're going to think about the crux of the kingdom. So I gave you four words last week so you could track where we were. uh, And we'll be finished the first three quite early and you'll be thinking we're getting home fast. But the last point's longer this morning. Just warning you, okay? So I want to introduce you to someone this morning whose life was defined by waiting. His name's Simeon, and we find him here in Luke 2. And if we'd met him and asked him, Hi, Simeon, what are you up to today? Oh, well, I'm going to spend my day waiting, he would have said. But Simeon, isn't that what you were doing yesterday? And last Tuesday when I saw you? Uh, Yeah, he would say, that's actually what I do every day. What? You just wait. Well, it's not all I do, but it's part of what I do. It must be great to be retired, Simeon. 
Oh, it's great to be retired. But what exactly are you waiting for, Simeon? What are you waiting for? Well, he would say, I'm waiting for the consolation of Israel. Or if you like, I'm waiting for Israel's salvation. Do you think you'll know when that happens, Simeon? Oh, yes, when I see him, I'll know. I'll know that it's him. And Luke tells us, here in the passage that we read, when Jesus' parents brought the baby Jesus in to fulfill all the requirements of their culture and their Jewish law, Simeon took the baby Jesus up in his arms. How appropriate was it this morning that we had your version of Simeon here, old Nathan there, What did you spend your time doing, Nathan? Waiting. Must be great to be retired. And Nathan took the baby in his arms and, 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 and blessed the baby. And in a sense, that's what Simeon was doing here. Only a little bit more than that in their culture because there was a sharp knife involved. So what is it that Simeon uh, prophesies as he, uh, as he sees this, this child being brought in? He takes this baby in his arms and he blesses God, Luke tells us. He lifts his eyes to heaven and blesses God and basically says something remarkable. Permission to die, Lord? Permission to die? Because I've seen your salvation. I've held him in my arms. It's real. It's happening. The king's here. So let me suggest to you on the emphasis, uh, on the basis of, of, of that start, that the emphasis of this section, this total section that we've read together, is on the salvation that the king comes to bring. What is it that Simeon prophesies? Well, it's about the nature of Christ bringing salvation. What is it that he prays? It's about his eyes having seen salvation. Why the reference to his name Jesus? Because of the fact that the name Jesus itself is very significant in a Hebrew context. Jesus is named for, as we, you know, you name your kids for things or after things. Jesus is named after Joshua. Yeshua. The Lord is my salvation. Yahweh saves. Jesus is the great deliverer. And indeed in Matthew 1.21, if we had to have read that passage, we get that explanatory comment in the text. You will give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So the question of the ages, as we come to it this morning, is not... Who does Jesus think he is? That's the smug approach in Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar, who do you think that they say you are? That's not the question. The question is who Jesus actually is. But that's the big question in our day right now, isn't it? Why all this fuss about Jesus? Now, if you answer that question by saying, because this Jesus is the only hope of salvation for the entire world, for all of time and history, you will become 
the one person to be afraid of in our culture. You'll become a dangerous marked person because you will become the individual who is dogmatic, unyielding, uncompromising, and intolerant. People won't want to hang around you at school if you're that person. People won't want to hang around you at uni if you're that person. People won't want to hang around with you at work if you're that person. If you just say to them, well, here's my opinion, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, and I didn't mean to impose on you. Uh, This is one way of looking at things, and you might want to think about that. Then that will upset less people, for sure. But are you being faithful to the gospel? Isn't that true? People aren't put off by a nice Jesus. A Jesus who can help us, as well as a number of others who can help us too. And it's in this climate that we face this subtle temptation to think that, that maybe, maybe others are a bit right. Or at the very least, maybe we just shouldn't take these claims as being absolute. That sounds awfully arrogant to say that Christianity has got it right and everyone else has got it wrong. But you see, it's absolutely crucial That we now in our generation do what others through history have always done. That we declare without any confusion or without any lack of clarity at all the claims and the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Young people at school, you'll face this all the time. If the early Christians would only have accepted that Jesus was able to be accommodated in the pantheon of Roman deities as one of many, they wouldn't have faced martyrdom. Just accept that he's one of many, not the only one, one of many. But in Acts 17, in Thessalonica, the early Christians are accused of saying there is another king above Caesar, one to whom Caesar answers above all the gods in the Roman pantheon, and his name is one called Jesus. He is the only king. He's the king who is here. And they were unwilling to compromise on that, and it led them to being beaten and imprisoned and martyred. And so it's absolutely crucial that in our generation, We now do what they and others throughout history have done. That is to declare the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. And that's the message that cuts and offends. The apostles never faced death for reminding people about the humility of a Galilean carpenter. And neither will you. They might ignore you and they might ridicule you, but they won't fight you over it. But if you insist with Peter in Acts 4 that God has made this Jesus in Simeon's arms, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, then you will find out how intolerant a tolerant society can be. You'll find books in Christian bookshops as the Christian world and the evangelical world starts to cave in on this, you'll find books in Christian bookshops that are starting to say things like this. Well, maybe we shouldn't be as strident about this as we have been in the past. Maybe, maybe Muslims can meet God in their way. 
by being good Muslims. Maybe Buddhists can meet God in their way by being good Buddhists. You'll hear people saying that. People who once stood beside me preaching in evangelical churches are now saying things like that. But Simeon's words here echo Peter's words in Acts 4. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is, listen to these words, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And that, you see, is the gospel story that is unfolding here at the beginning of Luke. The exclusive nature of Jesus the King, the saving King, the Saviour King. So let's look more closely at this issue of salvation and some of the, the confusion and the conundrums around it. Are you already anxious watching that wheel go around all the time on the screen there? I can see some of you getting a little bit anxious there. Let's look more closely at this issue of salvation because salvation is not just a theoretical thing. It's not just a construct. It's not just some existential idea or a piece of religious jargon. We use salvation language and we talk about things being saved all the time. Of course, we're in the middle of a World Cup. The Lord bless you if you hate the World Cup. It must be awful for you right now. But the rest of us are enjoying it. And uh, we talk about great saves in football all the time. Now, I'm old enough to remember this one. And back then, I was too young to know that I shouldn't have been supporting England. <laughs> Gordon Banks' amazing save from Pele in 1970. Possibly the greatest save of all time. So we're used to this idea of saves. People talk about saves in all sorts of other ways. They talk about saving par at golf. We talk about, in ecological terms, saving the planet, saving the rainforest. In economic terms, we talk during the pandemic about saving the economy. In social terms, we talk about saving the NHS. And during the pandemic, also, we talked about saving lives. So we're not unfamiliar with this concept of salvation, are we? It's deeply rooted inside us. Things need to be saved. But the question is, what does the salvation Simeon was waiting for look like? He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. Now, how did people hear that then? And how do people hear that now? Back then, the people who were reading their Bibles had one word in their minds. And that word was deliverance. The Jewish nation was under the oppression of the great power that was Rome. And they were a backwoods outpost of the Roman Empire, at least in that regard. We were like them, right? The Romans got as far as Hadrian Wall and had had enough. But Israel too was an outpost of the great Roman Empire. At the back end of it there. And the Jews hated them. And they longed to be delivered from them. And from their history, from their own history, you see, they knew that it was God who was their saviour. And he always had been. And he always did. 
They knew from their history that they were delivered from slavery without a war. They were delivered from the Red Sea without a boat. They were delivered from hunger and thirst in the wilderness without a natural food or water source. They were delivered from their enemies when they entered the promised land without any armed forces. Think of the story of Gideon. A couple hundred people, a torch, no swords. The whole of their history is clear. God is our saviour. We don't save ourselves. He does it for us. And he does it in all sorts of miraculous ways. And therefore, the alert Jewish mind, the Simeons, the Annas, the Zacharias, who we read about before and after Simeon, we read Zachariah earlier, uh, about Zachariah earlier in chapter 1, and we read about Anna later in the section that follows, all of them were looking for the salvation of Israel. They were waiting for God to act in salvation, as he always had done in their history. If you look back at Zachariah's song, verse 71 there of chapter 1, you'll discover that he uses this very language. He has raised up a horn of salvation from us, verse uh, 69 of chapter 1, in the house of his servant David, as he said long ago through the holy prophets. That's what we looked at last week. And then he says in verse 71, this is Zachariah, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So it's quite clear what Zachariah and all the theologians in Israel were looking for, isn't it? In other words, the assumption then was that God would come and liberate Jerusalem and its people from the domination of these horrible pesky Romans. But if they had listened carefully to Zechariah's song, they would have realized that God was moving in a different direction. Because further on in that prophecy, if you drop down to verse 76 of chapter 1, speaking of the role of John the Baptist, who comes before Jesus, Zechariah says he, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And then in verse 77, look at what he says. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through liberation from the Romans. No. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Well, they must have nudged one another, the people that were listening to Zachariah in, in, the, in the synagogue. They must have nudged one another and said, you know, on their way home over lunch, did, did you get that Zachariah comment this morning? I mean, what was he on there? That bit about knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. I mean, everybody knows salvation comes, you know, nationally. What's this business about sins? I didn't think we needed our sins forgiven. If there's anybody that needs their sin forgiven, if the sin of the world is anything, it's those horrible Romans, those lousy Romans that are making our lives so miserable. We're not in need of forgiveness of sins. They're the sinners here, not us. So do you get the picture? They're thinking nationalistically. They're thinking in terms of a national deliverance. They're thinking of the fact that God will come in power and they'll be back in ascendancy. But God says, I'm going to bring a deliverance for you, but it's not going to be along the lines that you're expecting. So let's think about the kingdom community. Let's think about the lines along which God was going to bring this deliverance. 
How does Simeon describe God's salvation in this child king that he holds in his arms? You notice there in verse 30, your salvation, he says, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, all nations. Well, that's significant. We'll come back to that in a minute. And the glory of your people, Israel. We sang about it this morning in our great opening carol. And, and pay attention to the words of the carols this Christmas. Will you do that? Like we sing them on automatic pilot. These are some of the deepest theological words our culture will ever sing. Don't miss the significance of them. Listen to these words. Heart the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. There's an echo from here, from Luke 2. Dismiss your servant in peace. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconcile. Joyful, all you nations rise. Do you see? Charles Wesley's picking up the themes from Luke 2 here and putting them into that fantastic carol. And the carols are shot full of that. We're going to sing one after we've finished the sermon. So the message here is that all humanity are going to be part of this salvation. All humanity will see God's salvation. And Paul develops this as he writes the book of Romans. It's hardly surprising. Paul and Luke were mates. They hung around for ages on his missionary journeys. What do you do when you're stuck in a boat with your pal for ages? You talk theology. You talk about stuff. They shared stuff. Romans, in Romans, Paul explains the way in which God fulfills Simeon's prophecy. That this king will bring deliverance to the Gentiles... That's non-Jewish people, the whole world, the nations. And at the same time, be the glory of his own people, Israel. Now, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on this. But let's think very briefly as a little aside into Romans 10 verse 1, where Paul says about Israel, my heart's prayer to God for the Israelites, the people of whom I am a national part, I've got a passport that says I'm Israeli. My colleagues, my countrymen, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And how are they going to be saved, Paul? Well, Paul tells us all the way through his writings, particularly in Galatians, they're going to be saved in exactly the same way as non-Jewish people. There's one way of salvation. There's one gospel. There's one people of God. If your theology doesn't allow for that, can I respectfully suggest that you revisit your theology? What is that way of salvation? It's a deliverance from sin, the experience of forgiveness. And that was and still is a massive stumbling block for Jewish people today. To understand that here in this Galilean carpenter, Yeshua, Joshua, the one who saves, whom we call in his Greek name Jesus, is the fulfillment of everything about which their prophets spoke. He's the fulfillment of the suffering servant, this Yeshua. Yeshua is the victorious king. Yeshua is the reigning Messiah. Yeshua is the Lord in all his glory. You see, what God is creating here is a totally new global community. A community not based on what passport you hold and whether it had the Star of David on it. 
but a community based and created by a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb that we will celebrate around the Lord's table. Founded by a crucified king, a risen Christ and a sovereign Lord. And in this community, this new global community, there are no racial barriers. There are no distinctions on the basis of Jew and Gentile. That was a huge problem for the early church. Half of Paul's writing in the uh, half of Paul's writings in the New Testament are to address that division, the fact that you didn't have a Jewish church and a non-Jewish church. There was one church. And they had to learn to live with each other and give and take on the things that didn't matter so much. So there are no racial barriers. It didn't matter where you came from. And that's been a significant theme this week in the news, hasn't it? It matters where you come from, but where are you really from? Well, I'm really from Les Mahego. So therefore, anybody can be in, right? You can even be from there. You can be a barbarian. You can be Scythian. You can be a free person. You can have a sexually promiscuous history, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. You can have a history as a drug addict or a porn addict. You can be You can have a history as a respectable church-going secret rebel. Your sinful rebellion in the past against God may take many forms. You will have your own poison. But that's what we used to be. That's what we used to be. Now we've been made brand new in Jesus. Now we're part of a new global community. That's salvation, you see. That's the salvation we're speaking about here. That's the salvation Simeon spoke about. And that is the salvation that is here and now with the arrival of the king. So let me finally bring you to the kingdom crux. Here it is. The crux of the matter is that the salvation the people desired then was not the salvation the people required then. And sadly, the salvation that people desire now is not the salvation that they they need now. That's the crux of the matter. The issue that dominated their minds, as as with so many in our culture, is the politics of the day. The nationalistic desire to be a nation again, to be free from the shackles of the big powerful oppressor. And you see how that kind of concern distracts us from the real problem because our real problem, the biggest problem facing our nation and facing our culture, it's not our situation. It's our sin. They were concerned for God to provide them with what they wanted. They wanted a God whose activities were focused on answering their felt needs, the things that mattered to them. God existed for their benefit and when we think of God as existing to provide what I want or what my felt needs are we scale God down to our own size then the notion of salvation the notion of deliverance the notion of redemption from eternal judgment is dwarfed it's diminished it's minimized when you downgrade God to be some kind of heavenly Santa Claus or some kind of divine slot machine And you do that 
by the way, folks, by taking your eyes off Scripture for just one second. That's how you downgrade God in that way. By taking your eyes off the revealed God of Scripture for even one second, when you get a mistaken notion of who God is, then God actually becomes a projection of your best thoughts. And you'll create a God with whom you are comfortable. I referenced C.S. Lewis last Sunday, and I'm going to speak about him again. It's a good time of the year to speak about C.S. Lewis because people are thinking about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is often on television and around at this time of the year. That story of Narnia where it's always winter but never Christmas until Aslan the king comes and brings spring again. But when speaking about Aslan, the Lion King of Narnia, the children are a bit afraid of meeting him for the first time. Lucy, of course, the most timid of all the children, asks Mr. Beaver, if Aslan's safe, is he safe, Mr. Beaver? Safe, said Mr. Beaver, reading from the book now. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I tell you, he's wild, you know. He's not a tame lion. I love that. He's not a tame lion. In all our own versions of God, he becomes tame, do you see? As in Acts 17, for example, when Paul is in Athens and he's looking around the marketplace where all the gods were for sale. And they had all these shrines to all these different gods. And they even had one to an unknown god. A god you can make up yourself. A kind of build your own version. An airfix model god. So if God is what we conceive him to be, then God, whatever or whoever that conception is, will then come and presumably give us what we want. So what we're worshipping then is not actually God but an idol in our own making. We are making God in our image rather than realizing that he has made us in his. In China, virtues are personified in deities. And there are three that show up together if you've ever been there, Fu, Lu, and Shu. But why would you ever buy them? Well, Fu represents peace, Lu represents success, and Shu represents longevity. Or a long life. Peace, success and long life. Wouldn't you like that? Doesn't that sound like something good to have? Let's be honest. Yes, I'd like peace, I'd like success, I'd like longevity. Well, let me tell you. Let me put it this way. If I could, if I could say to you, come to Christ. And I'm going to offer you peace, success and longevity. In fact, I'll put them in any order you want. You can have success first if you like. Or you can have it any way you wish. If we started doing that on Sundays, if you asked me back next week to preach that message, would the crowd expand or diminish? You'd say, there's a guy coming to Hamilton Baptist next Sunday who's going to promise you peace, success, and longevity here. Do you think our numbers would increase or decrease? I think they'd likely increase. Quite something quite nice to invite your friends to rather than to be told to repent because they're heading for eternal judgment, isn't it? It's called the prosperity gospel. That's what it's called. 
You can turn on the God channel and watch it any night you like. It's idolatry of the worst form. It's massively popular. Just as an aside, do you know that in 2009 it cost them 36 million to run the God channel? Think what gospel witness could benefit with that kind of money globally. But you see, the salvation we desire, health, wealth, and prosperity, is not the same as the salvation we require. Someone else might say, well, I see the problems with the prosperity gospel. I'm not into that. I'm more at the other end of the spectrum. I like the idea of liberating people from their bondage to disease and their difficulties and their homelessness and their poverty. Now, it's wonderful to be able to help people, and particularly at this time of the year, and let's all do it until it hurts just a little bit more this year. For us, I mean, who have. It's wonderful to be able to remove individuals from squalor, but that is not the gospel. The squalor and deprivation from which Jesus came to remove us is the squalor of our own human hearts. And they're more deprived and depraved than any Scottish index of multiple deprivation area one in Scotland, some of which are the worst in Western Europe. But our hearts are more deprived than that. Jesus, who came, as we'll sing over the next few weeks, to the squalor of a borrowed stable, didn't come simply to identify with people from the poor areas in Scotland. It was a much bigger deal than that. It was a metaphor. It was a picture of him experiencing the muck and filth and squalor of your heart and mine. The fact that you may live in a better area in Scotland means nothing as God looks at you. Look inside. What do you see? Shall we project the last 24 hours up on the screen one at a time for everyone to see, everyone else, and how we really are? Anyone staying to see that? You see, it's only when God turns the lights on that you'll understand this, that your felt need may not be your greatest need. Jesus told a story that illustrated that. The prodigal son's a good example. When we first meet the prodigal son, he's a boy at home and he wants it all. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now and he gets it and he goes off into fat city and he blows the lot and eventually realizes that what he wanted wasn't what he needed so it's dead interesting when you see him coming back to his father after he's after he's had everything give me at the beginning of the story give me this give me that give me what I deserve give me my inheritance give me what I'm due I want it all and I want it now but when he returns after all that has gone he's not coming with the language of give me he's coming with the language of make me make me like one of your servants I'd be happy just to make the tea Because he discovered that the salvation and 
freedom he desired did not bring what he thought it would. The salvation and freedom he desired was not to be found in the bright lights of success and financial prosperity. Success was a dead-end street. His friendships were fickle. They didn't last. Prosperity turned to ashes, as it always does. He ended up in a pigsty. What good is a gospel that leaves people in pigsties? That's the prosperity gospel. It leaves people in pigsties. It's a gospel that says, give me what I want now. It holds out the appeal of success and peace and longevity, and it delivers a pigsty. And once you're in the pigsty, you can't get out of there. There's no means of liberation in that gospel. But there's liberation here. So can I ask you this morning, are you able to say with Simeon, permission to die, Lord? I don't know how often you spend time thinking about the fact that you're going to die one day. I find as I get older, I spend a little bit more time thinking about that the more funerals I attend. And I think, I wonder what mine will be like. You ever thought, you wonder what your own funeral will be like? I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just being honest, vulnerable. We think about these things. You only get one chance to die, remember. In life, you get more than one chance to do most things. So if you mess it up the first time, you can have another go. You can't do that with death, can you? So you better get it right first time. Die well. Die well, folks. And to die well, you need to prepare. Because to do anything well, you need to prepare, right? Simeon was ready to die well. There's barely anyone in the whole Bible who's more ready to die well than Simeon. Let me die now. I'm ready to go now. Just any minute, Lord. Just take your time, but... I'm ready. I've seen your salvation, do you see? I've seen your salvation. I know it's secure. I know you're going to, I know you're the light for the Gentiles. I know your global plans in operation. I wonder if you've got to that point where you can say, I am ready to go. I can go any time now. I've seen your salvation. I understand who this baby is. I understand what he came to do. I understand that the problem I have is not external to me. It's internal to me. And I ask you to grant me a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of my sins. One through your death on the cross. That's the reference at the end of our section this morning when Simeon prophesies to Mary about the sword that would pierce her soul. Every mum wonders what her boy's up to, don't they? Wonder what my boy's up to today. What must it have been like for Mary to watch her son die? That death. And then to realize 
that the fulfillment of everything through his life culminated in that point when she held him in resurrection power. The reality of these things is stunning, folks. But they roll through the centuries to us here on a, an early December Sunday morning in Hamilton. And they ask us the same question. Are you ready to go? Are you ready now? Have you accepted God's salvation? Simeon took God's salvation in his arms and held him close, felt the heartbeat of God's salvation, the warmth of it, the reality, the living presence of it in the person of Jesus. And as he did that, peace flowed through his being. The peace that only comes from knowing that in holding Jesus as saviour, he had everything. So here this morning, now is the time for you to hold him in your arms. What are you waiting for? Let's pray. In these moments of quiet reflection, our Father, we pray that you will help us to see where our greatest need lies. And help us to see that the salvation we desire, the things we crave to be saved from, are not the things that we need most. Help us to see that we need to be saved from our sin and the consequences of that sin, that rebellion against you. And as we've encountered the Lord Jesus through your word this morning, we pray that we may hold him in our arms and hold him tight and hold on to him. And we thank you that as we do that, in a miraculous way, you hold on to us. And you promise that whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. So we thank you that the King is here. We pray that we may meet with him today in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.